Welcome to the Unapologetic Third Act Podcast, where we celebrate the age of possibilities and embrace the power of living on our own terms. I am your host, Lisa Owens, and I couldn't be more excited to embark on this journey of exploration, inspiration, and empowerment with you. We're here to challenge the notion in a world that often equates aging with limitations. The Unapologetic Third Act Podcast is a space where we redefine what it means to thrive in our wisdom years. It's a platform for sharing stories of resilience, reinvention, and pursuing passions that defy societal expectations. In each episode, we'll bring you thought-provoking interviews with remarkable individuals who have harnessed the power of their third act to make their mark on the world. From entrepreneurs to artists, adventurers to advocates, our guests will inspire you with their journeys, triumphs, and unwavering spirit. But this podcast is more than just stories. It's a call to action, an invitation to step into your unapologetic third act. We'll explore strategies, insights, and practical advice to help you unlock your true potential, find your passion, and navigate the unique challenges and opportunities of this stage of life. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and empowered. The Unapologetic Third Act Podcast reminds you that your best days are still ahead. Right. Hello, my fierce and fearless listeners, and welcome back to the Unapologetic Third Act. I'm your host and producer, Lisa Owens, and on today's episode is a riveting journey into the extraordinary world of Aaron Saxton, a powerhouse personality and the force behind the Aaron Network. Buckle up for a conversation that transcends boundaries and dives deep into what makes the third act of life genuinely unapologetic. Without further ado, let's welcome Aaron Saxton to the show. Welcome, Hey, Lisa, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, I appreciate you joining. After we spoke a couple of weeks ago, I've been trying to figure out where the conversation should go because you have so many exciting stories and I just couldn't even pick. So well, my just... life is like an Alice in Wonder rabbit hole adventure. So just dive Perfect. down one one of the paths <laughs> and I'm sure we'll just find fun stuff to talk about. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's get started and see where we land in the right. rabbit hole. Okay, so let's just start with how did you get started in PR, media, and the TV business? So I knew in eighth grade, this is crazy, in the <laughs> summer out of eighth grade, I guess going into freshman year. So I'm from New Jersey. So that's our ninth grade. I guess I'm thinking that's everyone. Yeah. Um, I I just knew I was obsessed with TV. I loved Price is Right. And I used to like imitate how the models would <laughs> like portray all the like refrigerators or ovens or whatever <laughs> and I just was really into it and like I knew Bob was the star and I knew like the models the Barker's beauties were like sub Bob but there was something about their non-verbal way like I was just like wow I really need that refrigerator and here I'm in ninth grade so and then I was obsessed with how the anchors on TV deliver the news um but then I started realizing that I was kind of starting to get the, you would be so great on camera if, you know, like, oh, you have such a pretty face. And then they'd go on to like, so the Yankees last night, you know, and like, <laughs> and there was like that extra beat, right? So I'm thinking, oh, they think I'm fat. And I'm, I wasn't, but the time now, this is the 80s, so I'm going to be 54 the time that those on-camera people were on-camera people, that was the start of supermodels. If mm -hmm. if all of everybody in my age group, like that was the start of all of that. Like poster 
supermodel. So we're talking perfection. So that was harder to try to like, as in today, if the girl in me was being raised today, I totally would be on camera. Um, it's just more of an empathetic world that we're mm-hmm. in now. And, and thank goodness for, for everybody. So I quickly learned, you know, it's not about being in front of the camera. What I'm really loving is the creation and getting all these people to say my message. And that I found out was a producer. So mm. kind of like a puppet master, like you're getting these hosts to say what you want them to say. Got it. They're not necessarily making up their own questions. Somebody's giving them the questions. They might ad lib a little bit, but so the real power, in my opinion, is in being a television producer. And I went into ninth grade knowing that that was going to be my major. So the major was communications, speech communications with a um, concentration in broadcasting. Um, So that's the first part. There's more to the story, but I don't want to like, I mean, I can keep going, but, um, I kind of just then had a great high school time. And then I went to East Stroudsburg university and in my senior year of that, it's in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, I applied for an internship and I had to go in for an interview. So I go in for the interview and it's in New York city. And I walk in and the place is packed. Like you would think, like, I don't know, the Rolling Stones were there, like (laughs) on that floor. Like it was just jammed. So I find the person I need to check in with. And she's very nice. And her name was Ruth Ann. And I said, like, gosh, is it always, it's not always this busy. And she's like, no, everyone's here, you know, for the interview. I said, for the interview, for the internship. And she's like, yep. And she looked at me like, oh, poor child. So I thought, oh, I should ask better follow-up questions before I prep this. So I said, I'm just going to ask you out of curiosity, since we're waiting, how many people are here right now? And she's like, about 200. Wow. And I said, excellent. That's awesome. And how many s- spots are available? And she's like, 25. She's like, good luck, honey. And she meant it. And I'm like, okay. And I, I walked away like, oh, I'm totally landing one of these spots. And I did. Yeah, I did. That's when I realized TV was that, and the entertainment industry was that, you know, competitive. And I'm like, oh, game on. Cause I've always been a competitor and, um, I've always played that game. And the rule is go after anything you want, but you can't hurt anybody leverage anybody use malice of any kind scam people like I can't I have to like live by the golden rule and get what I want so it's like I make it doubly hard (laughs) I can't just live in integrity and still oh what how annoying is that to live in integrity (laughs) sleep well at night and get everything you want oh it's annoying (sighs) so I did that. And that started my path to so many stories and so much in the career of, of media. And I worked my way up to a TV producer, you know, Barbara Walters became my mentor and I worked for her private production company. So after my internship at Good Morning America, I graduated high school, they hired me. So not only did I get the internship, but I got my first job out of all the interns. Outstanding. I was like, I want to still be one. And I, I don't, maybe one other person got hired from the, the 25. So I never 
took my eye off the ball, so to speak. And I've been sprinting ever since I haven't stopped. It's, it's, um, it's quite the run. And I normally don't like cardio. So this is, um, you know, this is like the only running I'll do is in my career. So, uh, you know, the career goes on and on. I worked at Good Morning America. Then I was picked up by Barbara Walters primary production company. There was only eight of us in the whole company. And we traveled with Barbara and produced the primetime Barbara Walter specials. And I met every celebrity at the time you could even imagine. I spoke with president candidates and kings and royalty. And I just, it was unreal. It was really just wonderful. And all while watching Barbara and learning from Barbara and really kind of and we had uh, my direct boss was Bill Getty and he both he and Barbara sadly has have just passed away. And mm-hmm. so I lost both my mentors in in about a year's time, which is just ridiculous because yeah. Bill was young. Barbara, OK, she had a great life, but Bill was like, you know, in his 60s. So that's terrible. That's and um, yeah, it's awful. So and it was unexpected. Right. So I just watched them and learned and soaked it up. And I got a bunch of different promotions within the production company, but then I hit the wall. Everybody above me, no, none of them were going to leave. So I got to, you know, the fourth spot, two other spots were finance and like two finance. Like you don't want me messing with numbers. So like that, those weren't even two though, their jobs were safe. And then, um, the two, there was two guys at the top and they're just, they're just not going anywhere. Bill created this, um, or, you know, was helping to create it. And, and Brad, this was, he was a lifer. And so I knew I needed to leave, which made me sad. And so I went and joined Rosie O'Donnell for her daytime talk show. Mm -hmm. She started up and I was a department there, head there. And, um, about a year later, wall street journal, was starting up a Dow Jones, I should say, was starting up a financial channel. And I was a producer. That's when I I really became a true producer by title. Rosie, I did a little, I prepped the producers. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like a, you know, the step before a producer, maybe like an AP or something, I guess would have been called, but they didn't call them that at that show. And um, I was there for a year and that was so much fun. But then Dow Jones shut it down. I guess it wasn't profitable. And somebody said to me, are you, are you nervous? Like, where are we going to go? I've never been on a show that, and I'm like, no, I'm not nervous. Why are you nervous? You, you, we can do this. I'm, this is going to be great. It's fine. Right. It's the only thing I'm confident about in my world is my career or where I'm going to go. My weight, my parenting, my relationships it could be a mess. And I'll think about it and overthink about it and analyze it, blah, blah, blah. My career? No, I don't know why. And I'm grateful for it because if I had to add career into the many things I psychoanalyze, I probably would be in a padded room and you would be talking to me and I'd be like in a straight jacket or something. So um, that's not the case. It's not the case. So I walked back to my desk and my phone was ringing and I picked it up and it was Bill Getty the same guy who was my boss at Barbara Walters specials. And he's like, Hey, what are you doing? I'm like, well, we just got let go. He's like, no way. I'm like, way. He's like, you know why I'm calling? And I said, no, why? He's like, so Barbara and I have been working on something and 
we think we're going to launch a show. In fact, we know we're going to launch a new daytime TV talk show. And I, I need you to come back now. You've grown up long enough. You've left us long enough. You need to come back home. Right. And I said, well, would I come back as a producer? And he's like, yes, because he wouldn't be, he wasn't able to give me any more title changes. Like, you know, so you I had to leave and he understood. Yeah. So as a brat, I said, well, would I be coming back as a producer? He's like, yeah, you would be coming back as a producer, like kind of mocking me. And I said, great. I said, okay, awesome. He's like, all right, I'll see you in the office tomorrow. Cause it was still our main office. And I said, oh, what's the name of the show? And he's like, we're thinking of calling it the view. <laughs> So that was, I was one of the original producers that launched The View. That's that story. I'll Amazing. take a break now because yeah. I've been talking. Well, what just <laughs> such an incredible experience. Thank you for sharing so all let's of that. Let's just take a pause there. Pause for studio talk information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so just in your time in The View, like, do you have any, any particularly, well, I'm going to save that question. Um, what it, what was your favorite memory or about being on the view? Cause I think that's something that people are still, Oh my gosh. Well, there were a lot of moments there were, um, I loved working with Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York. I know mm -hmm. that's not her name anymore, but I love that. I loved watching the make the makeup person put mascara on Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I just thought it was so cute. He's, he's a lot shorter than he is muscular, but he's ripped and he's cut and he was just such a gracious man. And let me think, you know, I worked a lot with Richard Simmons and he is just a hoot. And in fact, when I left the view, I guess we'll get to that in a part or something, but I ended up representing him for many years after I left the view because I, you know, I loved punishing myself and uh, so I became like the head of his publicity team. So oh, wow. that that was absolute. I'm not I can't say absolute fun. It was just a lot of work. But he's at the time, he's such a hard worker. And I really I don't we don't speak anymore, but not in a bad way. Just relationships ebb and flow. And he's not in the industry so much. So I, I can, I, I did produce so many fashion shows. I produced like all these amazing celebrities. I remember when I had sync, and I just was in charge of them and, um, Backstreet Boys. In fact, Backstreet Boys, Justin Timberlake was misting his hair with a water bottle and, I'm trying to prep everybody and they're young guys, right? So there's just a, a, a they're all in a room. And so everybody's really listening. And Justin's, I'm not saying Justin's not listening, but he just keeps spritzing his water bottle and he wouldn't let me talk. And I said, guys, honestly, I can get out of your way. Let me just, you're doing two songs. Then at the second song, we're going to stop. We're going to give you like three questions. That's it. That's all we have. Who's going to do the questions and da, da, da. And so I guess the guys thought Justin was cranky and they looked at me and they were like, Aaron, he's just cranky today because he's in a fight with Brittany. And I'm like, okay. And I thought, this is so funny. Like these everyday moments and it's this young love and he's just, and yet he has to deal with going on the view. So then he turns around and, 
spritzes me in the face. It's only a mist. He's like, it's just mist. I didn't really get your makeup, but he was like a scotch that day. And I think that I, I know now I see him in interviews and I know he's grown up so much and it's not like I disliked him then, but you can tell his presence now. I don't, mm. I, obviously I don't think he'd remember this story, but I don't think, I think he would be like, yeah, probably I did that. You know, it was funny. Little moments like that. Just little moments. Faith Hill, I was her producer one time and I'm not celebrity struck. I just, it's not that I don't love their craft, but I'm not, I don't need to like meet them. Just, I don't. So maybe that's why I was so good even at the production company, because I was just wanting to relate and get to who they really are, not the surface of what everyone thinks they are. And I, I love that. So Faith Hill, we, we both, Faith and I both had to come in really early one morning. And the only celebrity I would tell you at the time of this story that I was completely, completely smitten with was Tim McGraw. Mm-hmm. I mean, girl crush, like major. And I seen him in concert a bunch of times. I just thought he was like the full package, even with the balding hair. I just was like, I'll take this guy. I love him. Everybody I, loves I love Tim him. McGraw. <laughs> Everybody, right? I mean, like I have great taste. So I'm, which is odd what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty excited to go to work this day because I'm working with Faith Hill, which means Tim McGraw's going to be there. Tim McGraw and the girls, well, they probably, I heard they travel as a pack and Tim's not touring. So huh, 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 there's a good chance. <laughs> I cared about my outfit that day. I put on a little, I even curled my hair. Now I live in New Jersey. So to get into the studio was an hour and a half drive each way with traffic. Even when you're arriving at 6, 6 a.m. for a blocking musical video, you know, a rehearsal. So when daytime TV talk shows have bands and stuff, that crew, that band, that performer, they're there hours before blocking mm-hmm. shots and for a three minute song, right? So it's, you're thinking, this is crazy, but that's what we do. So I get in there and I say, um, Faith, we're going to get along great. And she's like, yeah, why? I said, because we have something really in common. And she's, we do? I said, yes, we are both super in love with Tim McGraw. Like, oh my gosh, where is he? He's not here, so where is he? (laughs) And I said it funny, like not in a stalker way. And she's (laughs) like, I do love you. This is good. And we had a lot of fun the whole day. And she's like, oh, he's back at the hotel with the girls. They're still sleeping. And I thought, you know what serves me right? And I've never met him to this day. And now I'm over it. But, you know, it's the only celebrity that I was like, okay, I'll meet him. It's so funny because I was going to ask you that question, you know, because I do. my impression is you're not like starstruck. And I was wondering if there was one, one person. That's it. Got it. Timmy McGraw. Timmy McGraw. But, you know, not like now if I, would I really love to meet somebody? I don't know. Who would you love to meet? Who would I like to meet? Um, yeah, I don't, there's no one that just comes to mind. Like, oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. I would love to meet Denzel Washington. Yeah. I was supposed to meet him. No, I'd like to meet the rock. I oh, I, I, yeah. okay. Let's talk about the rock. So All right. 
Dwayne and I got on the phone for a pre-interview and we chatted, chatted, chatted. And he was on. So he and my brother, Brian Saxton, were both football players. My brother was in a New Jersey high school. And then Dwayne, I forget where he was. Um, I should know, but I don't. And they both went on two scouting trips at the same time because they were both, I think each one of them, I can speak for my brother, was offered a full scholarship to almost every college except, I don't know, two. And the two that were offered had a returning tight end that they knew they weren't going to play Brian that much. I don't know the whole story there, but so Dwayne picked university of Miami Mm -hmm. and my brother picked Boston college. But so when Dwayne and I started talking, I immediately was like, okay, I'm not just a producer. Do you remember Brian Saxon? He's like, Sax, how is he? And then we just kept talking. He is so much fun. He is so nice. You would love him. Yes, you would love him. And he's just, he's just, you know, like any other normal person. Seems like, I mean, again, this is perception, but he just seems like he's a good guy. So yeah, he does a lot of good things. So he does. I agree. Good. You have good taste. (laughs) All right. So thank you for sharing all of that. Let's talk about like more current. So you have, tell us about the inspiration behind the Aaron Network and how it's evolved into the dynamic platform that you have now? So my PR company, I named, um, well, the first, when I left The View, I started a PR company and I named it The Idea Network. And then 12 years after I launched it and I had like a bunch of, you know, 10 to 20 employees at in freelancers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I sold that company and merged the company And with that merge, I had to relinquish the name, the, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea network. And for whatever reason, I, that bothered me. And I probably could have said to him, like, can I have the name back after I left? Cause I was, it's not like I was like a big, well, I guess I was a competitor once I left, but I wasn't, we never, and we left on great terms. So it was no big deal. So I did the Aaron network about a few years ago. So the LLC of my company is 11 communications and that's, that's what I, with taxes and stuff like that, but I'm such a, I'm a force to be reckoned with <laughs> that we decided we, the 31 people in my head that I hear chatting with me all the time. Um, we collectively decided to develop the whole brand. And so we just called it the Aaron network because now it kind of feels like I've got that original name back. And so under the Aaron network, you'll have, you have that girl from Jersey. So that mm-hmm. was a podcast, a video podcast I did a few years ago. There's 37 episodes there. I do on camera work for people. I will offer PR services. And I'm now currently writing a book called Chasing Pretty, yeah, which is a self account. Yeah, which is a self account about my ups and downs um, on the roller coaster of gaining and losing weight so much that I'm now down a hundred pounds. Congratulations! Had to get a tummy tuck, wore a bikini this summer for the first time in my life, and yeah, it's like a huge thing for me. Literally, no pun intended or pun intended, but I, um, in this book, I talk about my interactions with celebrities all the way through. 
Mm-hmm. We'll talk about, you know, being mistaken for other people. We'll talk about, you know, it's just, it's funny and, and a little sad, you know, there's a, a story in the book that talks about getting on the scale one time with my mom. And I guess she didn't realize how much I weighed. And I, I, I clocked in at 150 and she just had this look on her face and I'm like, neither of us expected to read 150. And, um, you know, we had to write that down on this piece of paper and I'm like, what? It's the honor system. So now that I'm almost 54, I said to my mom, why did we, why are we writing down the truth? Like I could have, I always looked like I weighed 20 to 25 pounds lighter. I have, you know, these German birthing hips. So I carry (laughs) weight well. And so I was like, mom, why did I, you know, of all the things we could fib about that we could have put 142, like that sounds way better than 150. Anyway, there's stories like that. It's funny. It's sad. But the biggest response is from men and from women is they, they appreciate my story. And I make a realization halfway or maybe three quarters away through of the book that that I realized what I was doing and why I was gaining weight. Mm. And, you know, and that was a big Shazam moment. So for me, you know, I wasn't very present, but this book is not woo woo at at all. I mean, I'm just not woo woo, but yeah, there was a moment that I just had that Eureka mind shift. And then once you know, you know, and then if you ignore, then once you know, you're just ignorant at that point. So The book kind of unpacks that, that all. So um, when is that targeted to come out? Well, I'm still writing it, my friends. And so what's interesting is I'm doing media interviews about it. I'm getting books for speeches about it. Uh, So it's really right now, it's an amazing keynote. It's engaging, it's laughing, and it's, it's a great keynote. And um, I just keep writing away. So I, I predict it's going to be a summer read of 2024. Okay. Well, a beach read, if you will. Yeah, I think it'll be a summer. Summers are always the most important season to me. I don't know why, but I launch things and I devise things and I recreate, you know, going into the summer, I was always like, well, I'm going to lose 15 pounds by the time I get into 10th grade, or I'm going to lose, you know, and I would spend the whole summer having this like coming of age moment where I'd walk back into school and it would be like that slow motion walk on camera where, you know, (laughs) smoke is coming out and really great like Aerosmith song is playing. And, you know, all the boys in school are like, whoa, where is he been all my life? And then I trip over, you know, like a door stopper or something. And then reality happens. That happened freshman year. I was sitting in the auditorium and we were all together again. We'd already done the merging of all the, the elementary schools into middle school. So it wasn't like I was meeting kids for the first time, but it was different because the way that middle school had us blocked out, we were in different blocks and I can't explain it. So I'm sitting around people that didn't look like my home base people. They were from mm-hmm. different parts of town and different schools. So I'm sitting there again, trying to look cool because I, uh, I've done all this great work over the summer. And so I'm going to sit cool. So I'm sitting on my legs. So I'm a little higher than everyone else. I want to stand out in my head. 
So I'm like one inch higher, not because I think I'm great. I don't, if anything, I'm doing this because I'm insecure. So I want to make sure I'm just sitting there. I'm on the end, on the aisle, and I want to make sure I look okay because I'm so self-conscious at this time of the story of what people might think about me or, oh my gosh, if they talked about me, I would literally go home, I swear to you, and vomit. Like really, it it wasn't good. So it was like that bad you know, it's like a bad, sad Molly Ringwald version of, you know, but except no one would make this except maybe it's like an, are you there? God, it's me. Margaret meets a Molly Ringwald movie. I'm not sure. And I don't know if anyone would tune in and watch it, but I'm sitting there. And so the superintendent says, all right, everyone, blah, 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 blah. I'm not listening. And I hear, all I hear him say is, this is the start of your high school career. Like it's really dramatic. And so the moment you take your first step to walk, to walk out of this auditorium will be your first step to a great high school career. Best of luck. And before you know it, we'll be seated here your senior year talking about practicing for graduation. So take that first step, everybody, and have a great day. Yeah. We all know where this is going. Yeah, I can. Yeah, we do. Feel it. So I pop up. Oh my God, I have to pop up. I, I'm sitting on my right foot. I'm a righty. So I step out with my right foot, except I don't feel my right foot. Um. Turns out, and I fall in the aisle, clip somebody's cap oh. in front of me. And my leg is so asleep that now it's getting like, it's not even pins and needles yet. It's beyond that. Like we're thinking blood loss, right? (laughs) So now I have to try to get up while the big crowd is coming and people are walking. I'm now the traffic accident that people are slowing down to look at. And now I'm like, help, I've fallen and I can't get up because my right leg, I'm like, come on leg, come on leg. Get Get some blood, like get in there. So finally I get up, it was probably like I was down for 45 seconds. I, like I, if you ever walk on pins and needles, you know, that's excruciating, but nothing hurts more than embarrassment. Nothing will beat that. So I just walked that out and I made everyone laugh. I am one of these people where obviously I'm, I can show up vulnerable and talk about things. And I was no, no different in, in, in freshman year. So I'm like, well, that was a great step foot forward. Let's hope my grades don't reflect this. And, you know, or something like that. People <laughs> laughed and like no one, it didn't go any further. Well, I, I didn't go to a mean years. school. Yeah, I, I didn't go to a mean school. We were all really nice to each other in school. It was nice. We had our different groups, but everyone was pretty lovely with each other. That's hysterical. So I'm sure you'll talk about it in your book, but tell us a little about, about your hundred pound weight loss. Cause that's a major accomplishment. It is. So I, I did it in stages, but in 2014, I had decided to get a gastric sleeve and I was just so mentally tired of gaining and losing, gaining and losing. Cause every time I would, so I, I guess I should tell everybody too. I have been on every single diet. Like we could play a game. Like if we had callers, they could 
call in with the craziest diets and I'm pretty sure I would have tried it. Like, like the obviously diet. the cabbage soup diet, but like the beet diet, the apple diet, um, the like red meat only, like the beyond Atkins. It wasn't even at, like I did liquid fasting, liquid shakes when I was like all ages, like this didn't just happen in college. So all throughout high school, I was always chasing what I thought, like, I, I felt like I wouldn't be pretty until I looked a certain way. Mm. And I get that a lot of people think that, but I was so intrigued by, um, as I got older, what I realized is that I can do anything in my career. Truly. I really do. I think if I want, if I really want to do something, I, I can do it. Okay. Maybe I wouldn't go and be like a neuroscience, like scientist, but I wouldn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So therefore I wouldn't accomplish that, but anything I truly like in my heart want to do, I can do it. I'll manifest it. I'll get it. I'll do it. I promise you. And, um, but it has to be sincere. So once I started thinking like that and adopted that mindset, I was telling myself, well, I want to be thin. I want to be thinner. Like I never looked gluttonous. I never looked like um, the fat girl in the group, right? But but the conversation, my grandmother always was on Weight Watchers and like, she didn't, she wasn't very maternal. Like, so she was always like saying, she was always saying like, do you, what, how's your weight? You know, like, so, oh God. So I, when I got to be older, anyone that was thinner, I thought was pretty. I didn't look at their face. I like, I just looked at like what size jeans could they fit in? Mm -hmm. And if they were thinner than me, they can do something I can't. And then that was so intriguing that I thought that was pretty. Mm. And I don't mean women, men, I don't care. Like it wasn't a romantic thing. It wasn't a sexual attraction, nothing like that. I just was like in awe and I wasn't even ugly towards them. I wasn't jealous. I just was like, wow, you know, for the ones that are born naturally stick figures. Okay. They didn't count, but the ones that I knew had done something about it and they got down and kept it off. That was pretty to me. And, um, I, I was intrigued by that. So I was always chasing after what I thought I needed to be or do in order to get looking like that. So in 2014, I finally mentally was like, I, I give up. I don't think my metabolism, like, I don't think my body, like we're not, well, I don't know what's going on. So the doctor's like, honestly, I have been monitoring you. You should have been down like 30 pounds by now. Like even doing the liquid diet to pat to, um, to prep for the gastric mm-hmm. sleeve, which is not a gastric bypass, by the way, the gastric sleeve is they just remove a little of your stomach. They make okay. your stomach smaller. So you're fuller faster. So, okay. um, and I don't want to gross anybody out. So that's all the detail. It's not, there's nothing gross about it, but you have to fast for like two weeks and get everything out of your system. Nice. Right. Yeah. Cleanse, like cleanse, like cleanse and cleanse. And, um, and then two weeks after you definitely don't, you're not putting anything in, like, you're just very liquid going yeah, through. Nothing solid going in. Yeah. So even fasting for, with like low calorie stuff, 
going in, because then you're really motivated because you're like, I'm going to drop weight like crazy. So if I can drop 10 pounds, even in water weight before the surgery, this is going to be 10 pounds faster towards pretty. It's going to be great. So I did, but it didn't, I didn't drop a lot of weight. And my doctor's like, this is peculiar, right? So he, he, he's like, medically, I got to tell you, somebody like you is the ideal candidate for a gastric sleeve. And I said, why? And he said, because gastric bypass patients have a severe amount of weight to lose. He's like, you, I mean, you, you lose 65 to 75 pounds. You're right there. Mm. You're, you're right there. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's perfect for a gastric sleeve. It really is. And so I went, okay. So I, I did it and I got down to, mm, I think 170 at the time. So at that point I probably lost 65 pounds and it was great. And then I ate my way and gained it all back. Mm which it's was so devastating because I've, I've, I know what it's like. I mean, I've gained and lost weight and every time it's like a little bit more comes back. And it's that's just, what happened to me. Yeah. So, you know, for those who are keeping math scores at home, I, that was 2014. And interestingly enough, when you have a gastric anything, because they, I guess my stomach, it's, it's more exposed to like, you more like acid reflux, I guess. I, I'm, yeah. you're more prone to have heartburn, it feels like. So I was getting it so much though that I called him. I called my gastric doctor and I said, Hey, I was your patient. He's like, Aaron, I remember you. And we did like a telehealth video call. And I explained to him what was happening. And he's like, I, I need to go in and fix that via surgery because that, that shouldn't be happening like that, that much. And he said, and by your chart, I can tell me, I can tell you, unfortunately, you gained all your weight back and a little even more than when you first weighed in for the surgery. And of course, I loved being reminded of that. That was awesome. Thank you, Dr. Thank Bertha. You. Thank you. I love you. And I even said that. Oh, thank you. I'm so, and he thinks I'm fun. He's like, I love talking to you. And so I said, okay. Um, so he said, I, I think I should get you in for surgery and then you can lose all your weight again. And all of a sudden the sense of dread came over my body. And I was already, when I, I guess I should have prefaced this by saying I had already started to lose weight. Right. And, um, I had made a decision coming out of COVID or during COVID. I really thought this is insane. I, I have to do something about it. And, but when I was getting such heartburn, I, I called him. So I was probably down 35 pounds mm. and he's like, yeah. Right. So I thought, here I go. This is good. So he's like, so this will just tap it off. And I had this dread and I said, no, he's like, what do you mean? No. And I said, I, I'm not going to get the surgery. And he's like, why? And I thought about, it. I called him the next day and he's like, why? And I said, I don't deserve it. Oh. And he's like, what? I said, I had a gift. I got this one time and I was handed everything I thought 
I needed to feel pretty. Mm -hmm. Again, not about my face. I'm okay. I know my personality is fun. You know, I'm not, I know I'm not ugly, but I don't think I'm like, I'm not one of the 1980s supermodels. So I, I said, he's like, I can't believe you're saying that. And I said, I have to figure this out on my own. I said, let's make a deal. I'm going to figure out why I keep eating and why I gain weight. And once I conquer that, I said, and I'm not going to figure it out if I'm thin. I got to figure it out so I become thin. And he's like, that might be one of the most profound things I've ever heard. It's very profound. Right. And I thought, okay. And he said, and I said, I'll make you a deal. I will lose everything I can. And if I, in earnest, if I can't do it anymore, I will, knowing that medically I kind of need a tune up there with like, obviously something went awry in my, I need esophagus surgery, I guess is what I'm saying. And so, um, minor, no big deal. I'll make you a deal. When I get to my goal weight, I'll call you back. And if I need to get help getting to the troop weight, then I'll, I'll take you up on your help, but I have to crack this first. And he's like, okay. So, um, so I, I, I'm there, I'm past there. And now I'm trying to get to the weight of 150 when I got on the scale in ninth grade to have the physical for my field hockey team, which I went on to become the captain of uh, years later and stuff like that. So it's not like, again, field hockey players, you run six miles on average in a game. So I was wearing the kilts. Like, I don't want people to think, and it would be okay because there's times I could tell stories and I was 280. Like I've seen 280, but I was pregnant, but I've, I've seen 280. I've seen size 24W. You know, I became a plus size model. Like I joined the ranks. Like I, yeah. I in the book, we, we just tell it all or I'll come back and I'll tell it all to you. But yes. um, yeah, it's pretty much, I got you. I got everyone. I got, you know, I realized you, I could have gotten bigger, but my frame couldn't handle bigger. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work physically, you know? So, um, now I'm a size eight and I'm like mid one fifties. So I have like six or seven pounds to go to hit one fifty, and they're a tough six or seven pounds. Yeah. The last one. I'm not, (laughs) and I get on the scale some days and it's a pound heavier. I'm like, Oh, come on. This is stupid. So that's where I am right now. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a lot. Uh, I mean, yeah, it is a lot, but it's a, it's a journey, but I think that's an amazing decision you made. I didn't tell anybody at the time I was getting it done because at the time I truly did have the esophagus had been an issue along with the stomach. And so that surgery was like a twofer. If I did the sleeve, it was going to correct something else. And So I just pretended that I, you know, I was lying to myself and then inadvertently by omission, I guess, lying to anybody who complimented me or asked me what I did. Um, So yeah, now if they talk about it, I talk openly because I feel like I can maybe help people more. Yep, absolutely. um, Yeah, so for me keeping my mouth shut, ah, what's the point? I, you know, I'm not vain and I'm such an open book now and it's, 2014 
to two thousand. Right. It's it's a lot. I'm a much more mature person even from back then. So if I can help people, so be it. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. We're gonna ask you to switch topics a little bit. When we talked a few weeks ago, you said to ask you to tell me tell you the story about Christopher Reeves or George Clooney. You had a couple stories. Oh my gosh. All right. So <laughs> I'll start with, I'll start with, I don't know. Should I start with the first one or the, I don't know which one. Okay. So we'll start with Chris because that's serious and George not serious. So Barbara was always very good. Barbara Walters was always good friends with Chris and Dana Reeve. And They've always kept in touch and he, she would interview him for 2020 pro before the accident I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I don't know where we were, but we were on location somewhere and we got the message that Chris had fallen and, you know, was paralyzed yeah. and he, Barbara got the interview. Like when he was ready to talk and, you know, on the road, Barbara got the interview and we had to pre-tape all the B-roll and B-roll is when Barbara's doing or anybody's doing a voiceover. So you hear somebody's voice, but they're the moving image is on TV. You're not seeing the person speaking. Mm -hmm. So picture like national geographic does it all the time. Yeah. Oh, look, the little baby it's found its mother. Oh, look. Oh no. Here's the cheetah. Oh my gosh, the baby's in danger. We'll see. Oh, the elephant swoops in and gets it. <laughs> that's all B-roll, believe it or not. And that's just all footage. So she need Barbara and the production company. Um, I think it was even for a 2020 interview. Uh, she they needed B-roll. And he was staying at Kessler Institute in West Orange. And I'm like I said, was from New Jersey. And Kessler was a half an hour most from my house. So she said, I need you to run with the production company. And I mean, I need you to be the representative of the production company and take all this B-roll. And this will require you in the room with Chris. I already told Chris you're coming and blah, 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 blah. So I was like, absolutely. You know, and I think I had met Chris before. I really got to know them very well at The View. After this story, I became the person that whenever he would go to The View or Dana would go to The View, I always, they had to have the studio a certain temperature because mm -hmm. for his equipment and they only ever wanted to work with one person. And then Barbara said to him, oh, remember Aaron from that shoot? She's a producer. And Dana said, oh my gosh, thank God. Let's let's work with her. So I think they were on two or three times and, or two times. And then Dana, after he passed, I think came a third, I think, or she came by herself because she had an, I don't know, whatever. But, um, so there were moments where I was just in the room with Chris mm. and the cameraman weren't, wasn't there. They were changing something out. And I, and, and I just, the equipment, and he was still like attached to the wall and it was, and it was so intensely real and quiet. And all you heard was the machines and out of politeness, 
I didn't know, do I turn on my charm? You know, it's not like he's been like this for 30 years and you just kind of go in and it's old hat. Like he was still getting used to this. This was like on, on the newer side of him being at Kessler. So I just was very polite, very professional. And I actually think he thought I was shy and demure even. Mm, that's certainly <laughs> not a personality. <laughs> no, I, uh, but I, I went that route. And as the years went on, he, he learned more, but I'll never forget the sound of the equipment, the machines mm -hmm. breathing for him. And looking at this man, like this is Superman. Yeah. This is my Superman. I mean, younger people, they had a different Superman, but this, this is my guy right here. I'm and, same, uh, same this is my guy. This is my guy. And, um, I, you know, it was intense. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. It was, it was a very special moment. And I really appreciated that entire, you know, hospital and both Chris and Dana and, you know, their, their management team, they were wonderful to work with. So that was, that's my Chris story. Kind of intense. So yeah. I don't know how I segue now and tell my George Clooney story, because it'll sound very inappropriate. <laughs> I, I think we're past inappropriate. <laughs> I know. I okay, good. So I'm at like I, this is back in the Barbara Walters specials days. So we're at George Clooney's house, and he had just purchased it. I don't even. Re it's not definitely he doesn't live there anymore, obviously. And um, but it was huge, expansive, and he was still on Chicago, Chicago, right? Was it Chicago? Doctors. What's the show that he was on? When he was like hot. I'm drawing a blank. I think it was Chicago. It's not Chicago MD. Cause that's now, I think it was just called Chicago. Yeah. I'm positive. Maybe. Okay. The viewers <laughs> here, this is an interactive thing for all you who are listening to this show, go on the site here and everybody share what the name of that show was. Show us. Let's just start this getting this social media going um, go. because then that'll distribute this interview even more because we'll rev up the algorithm. ER? Is it ER? Is, was that the show? Oh, ER. Why did okay. I say Chicago? I don't know, but you know, thank yeah. you, Google. So <laughs> ER. So my gosh, why did I, I was, I would have died thinking Chicago. And I was like, this is funny what mind games tell you. So he was the cute guy on ER. So, you know, back way before Grey's Anatomy ever existed, this guy would have been the original McDreamy, McSteamy combined all in one. So like everyone loved him. Now, oddly enough, it's not like I liked him like my Tim McGraw crush. So I just went in and did my thing, but I'm not blind. The guy's like totally handsome. And so he was just awesome. And there was, he had literally just moved in and he was inviting like his friends over and uh, I don't even know, they were probably all dude celebrities. I have no idea. And they're all downstairs playing basketball with their shirts off. And then they came upstairs for like, it was like, they were still kids. They came up for like lemonade or something. It was crazy. <laughs> and I was like, this is ridiculously normal and I'm standing in the kitchen and they're like hey oh, 
I'm like, do you win? They're like, oh, got our ass kicked today. But we're going back down. You know, I just was like, do you guys want any snacks? Like, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. A bunch of little so, boys. And then there's Max, his Vietnamese pot belly pig walking around. And Max really liked me. And Max kept like clupping around. And I had ordered flowers from a famous florist there to be the backdrop behind George's. There was going to be a ladder and just a vase of roses. Simple. Mm-hmm. We didn't want greens. We didn't because there was nothing done to this house. He had literally gotten the keys, I think, walked in and went to play basketball and said, OK, great. You guys can set up. We haven't even painted anything. They haven't moved one piece of furniture in. There wasn't even a plastic fork in the kitchen. Right. Wow. So it was literally a vacant house, but his. So all Barbara wanted or the director wanted plain roses. Well, this is Los Angeles. And though I ordered plain roses, what I got was something that now I'm five, seven, this stood taller than me in a bouquet. There was three bunches of grapes in it, all table shades of table fresh, by the way, I ate from the flower bouquet. There was like other cornucopia things that you put in like those like dried reeds that you see in the grass and swamp like you know those that are there and then you have these palms coming out and then very subtly there's roses so Barbara was not happy well obviously so I I was like I Barbara, I don't even know what I would say to get such a thing. Like, I definitely didn't say produce. So, but she was like mad at me. I don't know why. I mean, you still have a picture of this captured Uh, anywhere. So Max must have realized I, so that it was a bad day on set. And George noticed Barbara not pleased with me over this flower arrangement because I'm sitting on his kitchen floor again no table and I had to deconstruct the entire flower arrangement there's thorns like you would not believe they didn't unthorn anything because who would ever like you know rip apart their masterpiece so I'm bleeding like a mother effer and luckily when I was a little girl my grandmother used to teach me how to do floral arrangements and I can even take things and make a wreath without a glue gun. Like people use glue guns today. I don't know how or why, like I know how to do it and I just do it and it's it's pretty. So anyway, so everyone's like, including Barbara, she's like, well, what are we going to do? I'm like, I can take care of this. They're like, we just paid $700 for this flower arrangement. You're going to put this together? And I'm like, yes. Yes, I can do this. Like, I know I can do this. But I'm going to need a few items. Dun, da, da, da. <laughs> she wasn't laughing over it. She had no humor for me that day. None. None whatsoever. And what was sad is after this stop in the afternoon, we had Heather Locklear because she was a big champion of Melrose place. So I'm like, this is terrible. I'm getting to see 
George Clooney and Heather Locklear and everyone's cranky except me because I watched these two shows. So like the two days, the two people I get to like, I at least enjoy, oh, this is cool. Are like, you're going to, we're going to be scutchy with each other. And now watch, we don't even have a good lunch at the craft luncheon RV guy that comes for the break for craft services. I bet you I'm not even going to like the lunch. <laughs> so I ripped it all apart. I gave George the grapes. I think there was a mango stuck in there. And uh, I, I sure enough, I came up with the 12 with roses because it was more than 12. It was like she wanted a big bundle. She almost wanted like a pencil, like with the eraser on it. She wanted that to look like red. Like she wanted that to be like, eh. I don't know. But she got it. I did it. I did it exactly what her mind thought. She eventually was like, Aaron. And she smiled at me. Like, it's all good, Barbara. Whatever. So at the end of the day, at the end of the interview, the interview really goes well. George is greeting. George is saying goodbye to all of us. And he saves my goodbye for last. And he's like, you, come here, you. And he swept, it's like swept me into his arms and planted a big, big kiss on my lips. <laughs> and I'm going to say it was totally all out romantic, except I'm lying. I'm going to say it, but truly what it was, I don't know. I, cause I wasn't acting like I was in awe of him, but he saw the cruddy day I had. He saw yeah. it all. And he knows I was the runt of the litter. I was the low man on the crew. I was like 21 years old. Wow. I was young. I was a baby. And he was like, oh, this girl, this girl. Sorry. So you know what? That was a good day. And then later that afternoon, Heather, Richie Sambora and I hung out in our kitchen why Barbara did something else. And she's like, can you, can you please go talk to them? Cause I need to do this in an emergency. And I'm like, yeah. So then I said to Richie Sambora, I saw you guys on seaside boardwalk. Cause that's a New Jersey band, Bon Jovi. And I, I said, I saw you shoot a, a music video. Da, da, da. And he's like, that was our very first music video we ever did. We didn't know what we were doing. He's like, I can't believe it. There was only a crowd of like 25 people there. I said, I was one of the 25. So it Funny. bonded us there. And of course, Heather loved that. And then I asked Heather if she thought I perhaps could maybe come across as her chunkier cousin, because next to Heather Locklear, you know, an anorexic would look fat because she was just so tiny. So I'm like, I, what if we were like related by like distant cousins and that's how we were related. And we tell Aaron Spelling, who I was meeting the next day at his offices, we could tell Aaron that you think maybe I could like be on Melrose Place. And she's <laughs> like, totally, let's do this. I'm like, yeah, totally. I said, well, I guess if I'm meant, if it's meant to be, Aaron will discover me tomorrow. And I'm sure Heather, you're going to see me in your dressing room soon because He's going to see the glimmer in my eye and think, I need her. That's, you know, it didn't happen. No. <laughs> Sadly, it didn't happen. And I I can't say that 
there were so many people in his office. He didn't notice me. <laughs> there was just me and one other person in his office. I like he had his chance. He had his chance. So his he loss. missed that. He missed that chance to make me a star. So <laughs> he regretted that. I can tell you. I'm sure of it. <laughs> this is yep. you have so many, like I said, so many stories. I didn't even know where where what to pick. Okay, I know. so I know. let me ask you, let's talk about the unapologetic third act. So what does that mean to you, the unapologetic third act? Well, that's your brand. Right. And so what it means to me is, well, this isn't fair. Like I, I'm in marketing. So right away, I try to figure out what it means to you mm-hmm. because it's your brand. So if you're asking me what your brand means to me or that saying means to me, then I feel for me, unapologetically third act means I'm in my third act of my life. And now I'm just going to do whatever I need to do, be myself and not apologize for it. I mean, that that's the gist of what I'm trying to share with people. You know, I want people to be, you know, <clears throat> creating a life that inspires them after 50 and defies societal norms and basically do what that what they want to do right and not right. conform to what has been expected of us in sort of this later state wisdom years of life as i'm calling them so um what would you say that you're unapologetic about in your life i don't know cuz i think i'm still honestly i there's still things that i'm apologetic for meaning there's there's commitments I need to do and if I was truly unapologetically living for my life I would be moving and I would be living somewhere else but my family's here and my parents are both still living so like I don't think I'll be able to unapologetically live my third act until after I know that role as a daughter as they're aging and they're like, knock on wood, but they're not sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're around for a while. That's, that's and a I'm not, you know, so what I'm trying to do is in the confines of what I think, which could be a whole other debate, right? Of what I think the role of a child needs to be when their parent gets to be 80 and 78 as my parents. And these are all things I'm putting on myself that I could probably say, well, I'm going to split time between here and, you know, Florida or something. And I'll be back and forth, back and forth. And I could right now, because conceivably everyone knock on what again is healthy. And then, you know, so I, I could do that. I could do that. I, I think writing this book has been my expression of telling the stories because there are stories about that involve my family and my book. They're not bad. But, you know, my mom comes from a family where, like, from a decade of smile, everything's okay. You know, inside the house is one thing, and the exterior is a different thing. A, don't you dare tell anybody outside that, like, there was that, don't you dare to talk, do not talk about this to anyone. Erin, I mean it. And, uh, Meanwhile, I feel like my son just says everything. And so now I have like no 
you know, I, he can keep secrets, but then there's like, well, I didn't think you meant I couldn't tell Thomas. <laughs> so I, you know, I don't know. And yet Thomas is always here. So he's not wrong. And, you know, his best friend, it's just interesting. It's a, it was a different way to grow up where everything was kind of more hush hush. And I think as a society now, we kind of know so much more. We could talk about anxiety and depression and, you know, like, we'll look at everybody now deciding, oh, I don't really know if I identify with this or that, or you know, like, there's so many mm-hmm. things like now that can you imagine going to my mom with something like that? What would she say then no. instead of don't tell anybody like, you know what I'm saying? There, I mean, people weren't even out. So Rosie O'Donnell, when she was coming out, remember Ellen coming out? Like that was a huge deal. That made magazine covers. That didn't happen until much, much later. So you have to go back in time. So I write this book unapologetically. So that that's for me, for what I'm doing. Yeah. That's that's what, and I'm just, it's my book. I'm no bones about it. I think that's going to be my answer. Final answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, is there anything else that, you want to share talk about that we haven't touched on for this time? Well, gosh, no. I mean, I just, you know, I would love if, if people do want me to come back, I would love to hear what people want us to discuss because I'm literally no pun intended, an open book. So the book will come out, you know, summer 2024 and I'll be doing speeches and I'm going to do a chasing pretty group on Facebook free. Okay. Uh, I'm just, you know, building it now, by the time you, everyone hears it, it'll be up with like two members. <laughs> I don't I'll know. Be, I'll so, be there. I can be number three. Yeah. Like be one of my three members, people. No, it's going to be good. And I am a wackadoodle. I really am. So I will post videos and I will post, I'm obsessed with this jelly and I will post I love these protein chips. I'm not solving anyone's weight issue for them. I didn't lose a hundred pounds um, one single way. So I did some Weight Watchers. I didn't do Ozempic, but I tried Rebelsis, which is the oral version. I was on that for a bit. And then really what turned out, unfortunately, to be my thing was cardio. Mm. And it wasn't until I started playing tennis and walking three miles every day that the weight then went, oh, darn. And then it came off. But to get to jolt my system and the consistency, ugh, the consistency. So that that was it, unfortunately, because for everyone listening, I don't like to exercise. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan. And I don't like water. That's, I hate, that's... I hate the taste and people are like, it doesn't taste like anything. And I say, yes, it does. Yes, it does. I, do, I don't like it. So I always have to put lots of lemon in or like a little like sprinkle of crystal light to like, just give it something. So I'm water and exercise, um, adverse. So yeah, there, try to lose for losing weight. weight. Those are... Yep. I know. <laughs> I want to lose weight on like chocolate and pasta in a cream sauce. When, when that starts working I'm, for you, call me because I'm, I'm waiting for that, that diet too. and I am ready to be their brand spokesperson. Heck, I won't even charge them. 
right? So that's that. That's the diet that I would be drawn to. One hundred percent. So go to Chasing Pretty, the Facebook group. Please go to my website and sign yes. up because that's where you'll get the updates of the book or I don't know what else. I'll be doing fun things. I just don't know what they are yet, but they'll be fun. I'm oh, sure yes, they'll be they fun. Will. I'm looking forward oh, to that. Oh, yes, they will. All right, Erin, before we wrap up, what is there any call to action you have for my Fierce and Fearless listeners? Just, well. just, just to please friend me on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram are my two main ones. TikTok, I'm sure I'm going to be a raging success on there. Always. And I'll, I'll add your links in the show notes so everybody can Thank you. you easily. And definitely and the erinnetwork.com is where yeah. everything, and I can always help people with their marketing as well, but that's just, people call me just for, for this kind of stuff because it's fun. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. This was really fun. All right. So I'll, I'll drop all those links so everyone get, can get a hold of you. And when you get closer to getting your book published and out, we can have you back on and do round two. That would be so, excellent. Um, yeah. So there you have it, folks. A pro profoundly inspiring conversation with the incredible Aaron Saxton, reminding us all that, that, all that the third act is an unapologetic celebration of life, growth, and connection. Thank you, Aaron, for sharing your insights and wisdom. And to our listeners, check out the Aaron Network at theerinnetwork.com for a dose of inspiration and empowerment. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to subscribe, share, and leave a review and a five-star rating. Stay unapologetically you until next time. Aaron. And that concludes another inspiring episode of the Unapologetic Third Act podcast. Thank you for joining us on this journey of celebrating life after 50 and embracing the power of our wisdom years. I genuinely appreciate you. We hope that today's episode has left you feeling inspired, motivated, and ready to embrace your unapologetic third act. Remember, age is not a barrier to living a vibrant, purposeful life. You can shape your narrative and create a future filled with endless possibilities. If you love what you've heard, please leave me a five-star review on your favorite platform and share it with everyone you know, like, or love who needs to listen to this message. I am Lisa Owens.